can stones sing? Our text this morning is Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe. We pray that you would help us to understand your word and to go forth doing it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some stones that can sing. You can search the world to find these amazing stones. Igneous, sedimentary, metamorphic, but no, these stones are much easier to access. They are old, craggy, and ancient. And even though Keith Richards looks like he's already lived and died many times over, and great-grandpa Mick Jagger is recovering from heart surgery, the Rolling Stones will sing again. In the Bible, stones are a recurring and symbolic theme. In this Palm Sunday morning, let's see what the Gospel of Luke has to say about singing stones. Singing stones. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke 19. We're going to begin there in verse 28. Luke 19, verse 28. And it says there, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now, he said some things, and what are these things that he said? It's a variation on the parable of the talents. Jesus has just spoken about a nobleman who goes away on business and finds that some of his servants have been unprofitable and his citizens are in rebellion against him. So let's catch the end of the things that Jesus has said, skipping back a couple verses, back to verse 26, where it says this, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what has been taken will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now the point is this. This dovetails with what is now about to happen. The king's coming to take care of business in Jesus' parables, and the citizens better receive and serve him. Jesus, at this point in time after he said these things, is heading up to Jerusalem. He's coming from Jericho. It's about 10 to 12 miles away, about a half day's journey. And Jericho is one of the lowest points on earth. It's dry and dusty, and the king is coming. He's coming up to Jerusalem. Verse 29, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you. Where on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Jesus and the crowd with him would have walked up from the below sea level dusty plains of Jericho to the lush spring-fed weathered heights of the Mount of Olives. This is all very symbolic and we'll miss this if we can't get into the mindset of a first century Jew. Rabbinic tradition said that Messiah, when he comes, is going to touch his feet down on the Mount of Olives. He's coming to the Mount of Olives to begin his reign. There's a crowd coming with Jesus up from Jericho, and they're wondering and beginning to think, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one. He's coming now to Jerusalem. We're coming up on the Mount of Olives. On the Mount of Olives, at Bethphage and Bethany, Jerusalem would have burst into view. Heights looking at Jerusalem a little lower than the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley in between. And notice what happens here. Jesus comes right. He rides not like the kings of the world. 
The kings of the world who ride on war horses or ride in chariots. For you see, Israel's king was to be a servant. Israel's king was to be a shepherd king. And Israel's king, as he comes at this time, is coming bringing a message of peace. But Israel's kings always forgot this. They always wanted to be like the kings of the nations. And so we see in 2 Samuel 15 and verse 1, Absalom, the rebellious king, rebellious son of King David, who wanted to seize the throne for himself. And it says this, After Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him, he wanted to be like the Gentile kings, and he wasn't even king yet. And he had a chariot and men who ran before him. In 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 18, it says, And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot and to flee to Jerusalem. King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the foolish young man who would not listen to the wise old advisors of his father. And the kingdom split in two into Samaria and Judah. He rode inside a chariot. He trusted in the power of chariots. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 44. In the days of Elijah, it says this, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down. Wicked King Ahab, who is married to wicked Queen Jezebel, who came from the nations, he liked to ride in a chariot as well. But this is not the ways of God. This is not the way of the coming of the king in his triumphal entry. Psalm 33, 17 says this, The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Israel's longing for a king to come and raise a rebellion and cast off the Gentile authorities. Israel wants a king coming on a war horse or in a chariot who will come and bring triumph through military might. But the word of God says the war horse is a false hope for salvation. But what about what Jesus is doing? He's coming instead on a donkey. A donkey is a worse, worthless animal in warfare. It's hardy, it's patient, it's sensitive to danger. It is an animal of peace. The donkey is an animal of peace. But the king's not coming on a war horse. He's not coming in a chariot. He's not riding on a magnificent steed. He's not even riding on a donkey, but he's riding on the colt of a donkey. A young donkey that has never been ridden. A young donkey that has never been ridden. A young donkey that has never been used has no burdens, and is totally innocent. When Jesus dies in a few days, he will be placed into a tomb in which no one has ever been laid. Going on to verse 32. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Whatever they thought. And friends, we look at this, you know, I don't know about you, but the first time I read it, it kind of seemed like magic trances or something. They come up and, you know, it's an expensive animal. It's not free. And these men come up and say, the Lord has need of it. And they just go, fine, go ahead and take it. But think about the context for a minute. Jesus has been crisscrossing the country for three years. He's been preaching the coming of the kingdom. He's been teaching in powerful ways. He's been healing the sick. He's been casting out demons. He's raised the dead, even in this very village, and everybody knew it. This is where Lazarus was raised from the dead. Everybody in Israel has heard Jesus. Everybody in Israel has seen Jesus. Anybody who hasn't knows someone who's seen or heard Jesus. People even outside of Israel know about Jesus. They know he's coming. There's a crowd coming with him. Could he be the Messiah? 
Is he fulfilling prophecy? Messiah has need of it. Jesus is coming up with this large crowd, and they're enthusiastically proclaiming him Messiah. This crowd coming up from Jericho, going along the way, people coming in from all the villages that they pass, joining into this mighty crowd, and as they come up to this village, the Lord has need of it, so they give it. Going on to verse 35, and they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Friends, this is what you do when Messiah has come and nothing else matters. If you lived in the first century and you were a common person, you might have two sets of garments. You might have a really nice robe and you had a robe you worked in. It would have been made out of some sort of rough material like linen. You probably had one cloak. Remember, there's not factories around at this time. Everything's made by hand. Material is expensive. You buy it from somebody or you weave it yourself and then you make a garment out of it. And so a cloak costs a lot of money. But notice, they're throwing their cloaks down on the ground. They put the cloak on the donkey's colt for Jesus to ride on. We see in the other Gospels that they're actually taking palm branches as well. And they're throwing these down onto the road as well. Why did they do these things? Because nothing else matters. Messiah is coming. They're throwing their cloaks on the ground and they're throwing down these palm branches because these palm branches are symbolic of triumph coming forth from the days of the Maccabees. When the Greeks were ruling over Israel about 200 years before the coming of the Christ and they said we want to sacrifice a pig in the temple and that was enough. And so a family of priests rose up, the Maccabees led by their father Judas the hammer. And Israel rose up with them in an impossible circumstance, and they cast off the Gentile authorities. They pushed the Greeks out of their land. And when they came into the city of Jerusalem in triumph, and they went into the, the, the temple grounds in triumph, they carried palm branches with them. And so we see here Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. They're casting down cloaks. They're casting down palm branches. Messiah's feet and the feet of the animal that he's riding on must not touch the cursed dirt of the ground. So the king of the Jews is coming, riding not on a war horse, but on a gentle donkey's colt. He comes in peace, for he is the prince of peace. He's bringing a mission of peace to the world through death and resurrection. You know, when I was in Pakistan, I saw this poor little donkey. It was so bony. It was struggling along under its load. It had this big giant wooden cart behind it and a man was sitting on it with a crop. And this cart was filled with wood and there was this little bony donkey and he was whipping that donkey and it was thrusting itself along and struggling and sweating. The true little donkey colt is Jesus. Jesus is riding on the donkey's colt. But in reality, the beast of burden is the Christ who rides along on it. Friends, when he comes again, it's gonna be different. He's bringing a mission of peace when he comes at the triumphal entry. He comes symbolically on the donkey's colt because he's bringing a mission of peace and reconciliation. But when he comes again, he comes on a war horse. Revelation 19.11 says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. When Jesus comes on the last day, he comes as the great conquering king. Then it's time for war horses and time for chariots and time for judgment. But now it's time for peace. Verse 37, as he was drawing near, all the way on the way down the Mount of Olives, 
the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is Palm Sunday. I want you to get some flavor of what this would have been like. The disciples coming with Jesus, probably at this point in their many thousands, they come to the top of the Mount of the Olives. They look down upon the city of Jerusalem. They attest to the signs that Jesus has already done before him. They're crying out praises from God. This is drawn from Psalm 118, which itself is part of a larger whole. It's called the Hallel, or praise. It consists of six psalms, Psalm 113 through 118. A theme that comes up at the beginning and the end of this is praise for God. Hallel for God. Praise God from Israel. Praise God from Israel's priests. Praise to God from God-fearers of all nations. It was recited as a unit on joyous occasions. These occasions included the three pilgrim feasts, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. But the biggest of them was the Passover. It was recited at morning prayers and oftentimes in the evening prayers. Think about it for a minute. A thousand years of chanting these psalms. Because this is what you do when Messiah comes. This is what you do hoping Messiah comes. A thousand years of chanting through David and Solomon's zenith. The fracture of Israel when the northern kingdom was carried off in 722 to Assyria. The people of God were chanting these songs in anticipation. Lord, send your Messiah to deliver us. The Babylonians come and carry off the people into Babylon. And they chant these songs. Lord, come deliver your people. Bless us. 600 years of external and internal exile being ruled over by the Gentiles and every year, generation after generation, Passover after Passover. Hundreds of years of people are chanting these songs, longing for the coming of Messiah. And then this day, there he is. There he is. They're chanting the song, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, the Jews would sing this as they walked to Jerusalem for the Passover, the pilgrimage of pilgrimages. This is what it would have been like. Now the, the valley there, the Kidron Valley is very rocky. It would have been very echoey. Thousands of people were coming with Jesus already to the height of the Mount of Olives, and they begin to make their descent down into the Kidron Valley. At the Passover, there's hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of pilgrims. All Jewish men from all over the world need to come to this pilgrim feast. They come into Jerusalem, which is a small city of 50,000, and they fill up all the lodges and inns. And so what would happen next is people on the Mount of Olives would rent out their fields, and the pilgrims would come and camp on it. Hundreds of thousands of people. And this crowd coming up with Jesus, Jesus whom the people already know about, they're chanting this song. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're throwing down their cloaks. They're throwing down palm branches. It's cacophonous. The crowd's gigantic as it comes up toward Jerusalem. And the people from the house of God along the walls of the city of Jerusalem are saying, We bless you from the house of the Lord. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. For the crowd, the cat's out of the bag. Jesus has proved he's Messiah with his mighty works and he's coming to Jerusalem at just the right time in just the right way to begin his reign. But the Pharisees in the crowd aren't convinced. 
They're alarmed at the heresy. You think you're Messiah? These people, they're shouting out and claiming you as Messiah? Shut them up! Shut them up! The mean government rulers, the politically correct mocking clack, the sophisticated, unbelieving mainline theologians, the bitter, power-hungry, institutional administrators always insist that true believers must shut up, shut them up. Verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The king of the cosmos is here. And if men are silent, nature will sing, the stones will sing. Can stones sing? Are there singing stones? The stones do sing. If you look at the Bible, stones are a very big symbolic motif. Stones oftentimes represent people. Think about it for a minute. Remember when Joshua crossed into the promised land with the people of God? They come to the Jordan River in flood stage. The priest's feet carrying the Ark of the Covenant touched the water to parts just like the Red Sea. And then they were to carry 12 big stones out of the river to their camp that night and set up a memorial. 12 big stones representing the 12 tribes. 12 stones representing the people of God. Think about the priest wearing his magnificent robes. He's got a breastplate on. And what's on the breastplate? 12 precious stones representing the 12 tribes, representing the people of God. The priest himself represents Israel, the people of God, as a priest to the nations. In reality, he's a miniature of the entire world. He represents people. Stones represent people. And the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. The stone in the wilderness that gave the people water. The rock was Christ. And we are the stones of the new temple. If the world is not ready to acclaim Jesus as Lord, the living stones of the new covenant temple will sing to him until all the world bows before his throne. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. Unlike the rolling stones, or no stones at all, there's a place where stones sing. In India, there's a village called Gugal, which is sometimes pronounced Google. That is named after the Kuguva Kabu, which means singing stones. These are actually river stones that make a musical sound when water strikes them. When the Pharisees told Jesus to rebuke the disciples for crying out, for singing about his glorious coming, he told them if he quieted the crowd, the stones, like the stones of Gugal, would sing out. In fact, the stones do sing Jesus' glory. For you are those stones, the living stones of the new covenant, holy temple of God. Sing of his glorious triumphal entry this day and be mindful of your duty as good servants of the king to stay busy. If there's one huge thing that I learned when I was presiding minister of our denomination, it's that Jesus is on the move and his stones are everywhere and they're singing. Man, let's be busy here in South Austin and bring more stones to join us. For we've seen this morning in the Gospel of Luke that there's singing Stones. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless us this day. Fill us with your spirit to be those singing stones. Bless us to see that we are stone upon stone in the new covenant temple and to carry out our duties as priests to the Lord with joy. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name.